You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, we have Scott Lynn of Masterworks back on the show, fresh off of his recent $110 million fundraise that valued Masterworks over $1 billion to discuss how art performs during periods of inflation. In this episode, we also discuss why Masterworks is choosing to stay private for the time being, what the $110 million they raise will go towards, Masterworks overall impact on the art market, the most compelling research they've uncovered to date, which artists might have the first billion dollar piece of art, Scott's evolving thoughts on NFTs and Web3, decentralization disrupt Masterworks, and a whole lot more. I love having Scott on the show because I always learn a ton. I'm becoming more and more fascinated by the art market and more and more impressed by what Scott has built. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with Scott Lynn. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie, and today I'm super excited to have back on the show, Mr. Scott Lynn of Masterworks. Welcome back, Scott. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. First of all, I need to congratulate you because since we last spoke, Masterworks has grown considerably and has now surpassed the unicorn status with a valuation over $1 billion, which, you know, that's got to feel good. You raised over $100 million for a Series A, which is, you know, staggering. What will that money be going towards? So the core business today is profitable. We're growing like crazy. We're hiring 20, 30 people a month. I think we'll be over 300 people by year end. I can't remember the last time I was on. I think it was over a year ago. This year, we'll buy over a billion dollars in art. So we've quickly become the largest buyer in the art market. So when we think about how do we, how do we deploy capital, some of it's just balance sheet capital needed for purchasing paintings. Some of it is, is operating expenses, hiring people, building out teams. We're, uh, we're investing heavily in research. We're investing heavily in data analytics, understanding different dynamics in the art market, where we think it makes sense to invest. So really, really across the board. But you know, we're just we're super excited about the opportunity ahead. I mean, our, our belief continues to be that this is the largest asset class that's never been securitized. And for the very first time, we're, we're making it investable. So that's a huge scope of work. Now, talk to us a little bit about what that fundraising process looked like. You know, you brought it to market. How did you bring it to market? Who got in on it? What did it look like for you? Yeah, it's not my it's not my first rodeo. So I've done, I've done this several times before, and it, you know, we we have the uh, the good fortune of having tons of investor interest. So we really took a handful a handful of firms that were interested in the business that I that I knew personally. Hired Goldman. I think start to finish, it, it took what did we count? I think it was roughly forty days, which is unheard of. So you, you know, it was a it was a super super fast, very very selective process. And the investors that came in, are, are they looking at Masterworks as a play on the art market itself or on the fractional ownership collectibles market? What was the angle that they, you know, what was the appeal for them exactly? I think the really high level thesis that everyone is very excited about is if you, if you subscribe to this notion that venture and private equity is roughly a three and a half trillion dollar asset class, 
and you believe that art is one and a half trillion, but there's 9,000 firms that help people allocate to venture and private equity, and there's only us in the art market, you just immediately see what a, what a huge opportunity that is, and almost to a certain extent become valuation agnostic. And I, and I think that's how a lot of people approach it very, very early, which is, I think there's a lot of data to suggest that this is, is literally the largest asset class that has no investment products left, right? Every, every other major asset class has been securitized and there's, there's lots of competition. So this is, this is one of the few where we're still in the very, very early days. You touched on an interesting point there about the valuation and the fact that there's so much money in private equity and VCs. When you're getting above that threshold of a billion dollars, I'm always curious as to why owners choose to stay private instead of going public. You know, that said, Sotheby's was once public, for example, and then chose to go private. Masterworks seems like its model would make for a great public company or constantly raising capital to buy art and things like that and having the access to those markets. Walk us through the decision to continue to stay private and maybe if there's aspirations to be public one day in the future? It's an interesting question for us, right? Because we, we are the largest filer of public offerings with the SEC now. We fire, file one about every five and a half days. I think where we are today, we just don't have the, um, the bandwidth to be a public company, but we do believe that this fundamentally will be at some, some point in time. So it, it's, it's really probably more of a prioritization thing with us right now than, than anything else. You know, on that note, I'm curious about the, you mentioned securitizing all the time. I mean, I'm curious about some of the paintings that you currently carry or own or are listed. And if possibly you would spin those off to be their own publicly traded entity at some point, I mean, just the art itself. I mean, some of these are entering stratospheric valuations on their own. Is that something that you could see being viable in the future? You mean, you mean actually having the paintings be exchange listed? You can certainly see a world where that makes sense for very expensive paintings. Probably makes more sense for a fun type product that's you know, publicly, publicly traded. But yeah, I mean, we, we definitely think the liquidity is one of the key challenges with the asset class. So I think any additional mechanisms or features to make the asset class more liquid just allows it to be more accessible to, to any type of investor. And obviously, you guys are kind of building that marketplace, which I know is incredibly valuable as well. But are there other aspirations to potentially bundle up some of these pieces of art into, say, like exchange traded? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're right now working on fun products um, that will give people broad exposure to all paintings on the Masterworks platform. So investors don't have to pick and choose paintings. And that I, that I think will be very, very well received. We're, we're testing you know, slow rolling some of those products into market now. So I, I do think that's interesting. Now, now an ETF is a is a is an amazing product that we we would love to bring to market. It really requires us to have each underlying painting be very liquid. And although we have a secondary market today, where investors are trading shares and all of these works of art, you know, the, the liquidity is not like an exchange traded security where you can you can get out of a position in in seconds. So I think I think that's a ways off. But that would obviously be the holy grail type type product. What about the idea of, you know, mentioned these VCs getting involved. It's making me wonder if Masterworks itself would then one day have a venture arm, for example, for say aspiring artists in their early days, helping them get off the ground. You're giving them incredible exposure. You could see how you could kind of exacerbate their success very quickly. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I, this weekend, I was actually at, uh, at a family event and a friend of the family was, was talking about how her son is an artist and, and how, you know, how difficult it is to be an artist. And I was talking, you know, I was telling her some of the, the stats in the art market. Like, for example, 61% of $60 billion that sells every year in the art market is from the top 100 artists, most of which are deceased. So you, you very quickly understand just from that stat alone, how difficult it is to build a career as, as a new artist. I think one of the cool things about what we're doing, which isn't, you know, isn't totally appreciated today is that if we're able to bring billions of dollars into the art market, and as we start to, to allocate to more emerging artists, it does really make it much easier for new artists to enter the market if there's, there's kind of active people like us buying up buying up those paintings. So we don't, you know, we don't, we don't have that, that product today. It's more of a speculative product for emerging artists. But, but at some point, I think that's an interesting, interesting product that I'd, I'd love to roll out. That's awesome. So last year, I think you bought something like $400 million worth of art, you know, being you being Masterworks. And you're on track now, as you said, to put purchase over a billion dollars this year, which obviously sounds like a ton of money. But talk to us and kind of remind us about how that compares to the overall art market as a whole. It's a good question. So it does sound like a ton of money in the art market in particular, right? Because there's, there's really nobody like us buying at scale, at that sort of scale. But the art market today, it, it, the estimates vary, but it's roughly a $60 billion a year transaction volume market. So a billion dollars is still, you know, it's significant, but it's not, it's not over, overpowering by, by any means. We are also starting to consider artists who are, are modern, like Picasso, impressionists like Monet, uh, this year as part of our buying strategy. So we, we expect to increase the number of artists that we bring to the platform beyond the 55 that we focused on historically, and then also move into some impressionist and modern categories, which, which we haven't been in. Now, you mentioned that Masterworks is profitable already. I'm kind of curious. We, I don't think it's something we really went into on our first episode together, which was episode 349. But talk to us a little bit about where and how Masterworks makes money in the process of people buying those fractional shares of the art itself. Yeah, it's all, so our, our management fees are really very much like um, private equity or, or a hedge fund. So we make 1.5% per year on um, assets under management, and then we make 20% profit when we sell the painting in the future. So that's our, our fee structure very, very broadly. I'm curious about that second point there about selling it in the future. So say, for example, a piece of art goes up on the website, it's auctioned off, we all own this fractional share of it. Who then determines how it sells again? I mean, we're, we're obviously, it's kind of publicly traded now and we're just selling shares on a secondary market at that point. But could someone actually feasibly come in and buy up the whole painting again, theoretically? We, we restrict the total ownership. So the, the most anyone can purchase is actually 20%. So that technically could not could not happen, but we, we we decide when to sell the painting, right? So we have full discretion as the manager when to sell, and that's that's really important because the art market tends to be very event driven. So when an artist sets a price record, for example, it tends to be a great time to sell into that market because there's a lot of hype around the artist. When there's a retrospective covering that artist's work, you know, again, there's a lot of a lot of momentum around that artist, so it's a good time to sell. So we, we found that just generally the ability to act quickly, respond to, to inbound inquiries or otherwise is, is really important. 
So when I went onto the Masterworks site recently, I was actually surprised by the lack of offerings on the site <laughs> because you know you, you would expect it to be kind of flourishing with with a bunch of different options, but there weren't really, which you know tells you a lot, I think, about your rigorous process to get listed on your platform in the first place. So talk to us a little bit about what goes into getting listed and how many you kind of expect to even list in a, say a year. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. So, so now is the biggest buyer. We just get, we get, we get offered basically everything in the art market. So when you take, you know, if you look at individual artist markets, uh, George Kondo is a great example. I, I was going through the state of the other day. I think, I think we've been offered around 250 George Kondo paintings uh, over the past couple of years. And to put that in context, I mean, if you're a collector and you, even if you're one of the biggest George Kondo collectors, you might get offered six George Condos a year, 12 George Condos a year, you know, you're, you're never getting offered a couple hundred. So we've purchased now, I may have this wrong, but I think we purchased four George Condo paintings. So the, the amount of work that our acquisitions team sees, reviews, analyzes, frankly rejects, I think speaks to the, the quality of offerings on the platform. And I, I fundamentally believe that there's, there's just no better way to invest in art or get exposure to the asset class um, outside of what we're doing today, just because of of that dynamic alone, like it's just it's just not possible for any individual or even a small team to review the volume of work that um, that we're reviewing. But you know, to your to your to your point about there not being a lot on the platform, like the the other dynamic that we're seeing is the paintings are just selling out fast. So we we have one two million dollar paintings sometimes that sell out in a day or less than a day. We had a seven million dollar Banksy three or four weeks ago that sold out in two hours. You know that that is is part of a problem with the platform that that we'd like to um, we'd like to build some features around, like possibly previewing offerings, so people can understand what's what's coming up in the future, rather than just relying on on when it launches. Very interesting. You know, this is a very timely discussion because the markets have been just pummeled this year already, and they're down big again today. It makes a lot of investors get you know start rethinking their strategies, so to speak. And I've heard you mention that the S&P 500 correlated to the art market is very low. I think you said it was 0.14 at the at the time. Now, this could be a really good time for investors to start thinking about something like art, not only the markets going down, but the risk of inflation and a number of other macro themes. Now, your strategy, and pardon this comparison perhaps, but it's similar to how Michael Saylor has been using MicroStrategy in a sense to <laughs> be stacking Bitcoin on his yeah. balance sheet. Do you consider yeah. Masterworks you know, stacking fine art on their balance sheet as somewhat of a similar thesis? You know, it's not, it's not a similar thesis, right? Like at the end of the day, we, we acquire art and we believe in the asset class because we, we think it's, it, it just provides consistent long-term returns, right? I think his, his thesis on, on Bitcoin is more extreme for lack of a, you know, <laughs> lack of a better word. But yeah, I mean, we, we're big believers in the asset class long-term. Obviously, we have a lot of skin in the game because we have carry in the paintings. So we're, we effectively have, have equity in everything that we're bringing to the platform. And you know that is as part of how we think about our balance sheet and, and how we think about long-term value of the, of the business. What is Masterworks' impact on the art market itself? So say, for example, what's your take on the new liquidity you're bringing into the art market and how it affects the pricing? Does it compress pricing due to the fact that there's more competition or do you think it creates a premium since there's more dollars chasing fewer goods? What's the overall impact of this much interest going into the market? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. It's it's a question that we have thought a lot about from a research perspective specifically. And and we we think about less about these things in, in the context of today. Like today, I don't I don't really think we're impacting prices in the art market that much. But if we're raising $5 billion a year in capital and we're buying $5 billion a year in art, would we be impacting prices? And I, I think the answer is probably yes. And then obviously that that begs the question of is that, you know, is that a bad thing? And I think our view is that, you know, art, very similar to, to Bitcoin and the and the analogy that you just used, the supply is not really increasing generally on an individual artist market level, right? In many cases, it's decreasing because people are donating paintings to museums. So if you bring in more demand with supply that's either fixed or decreasing, then then prices will go up. We don't really think that's a bad thing so long as new investors are coming into the market, right? So as long as we're exposing new investors to the asset class who are allocating to it as part of an investment strategy, we think that's that's a a healthy way to build an ecosystem that that drives prices up over time. When you do list a new piece of work and you securitize it, how many shares do you start with when you're in the initial offering? It's really just the price divided by twenty dollars per share. So every IPO that we do is is a twenty dollars per share IPO, and that's actually a great way if you go to our secondary markets to understand how. Paintings have appreciated just based on how, how you know how they're trading versus versus twenty dollars. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready Rav Four. Available with all-wheel drive, your new Rav Four is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space. Plus, available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at NDTCO.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's NDTCO.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance, 
to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. Has Massworks ever securitized a sculpture piece of work, uh, like a Jeff Koons, for example? You know, we haven't. I mean, we, th- those, those uh, you know, like a balloon dog is something that we've thought about historically. Koons' market has been one, one of the more challenging markets just from a uh, from an investment perspective. So, you know, we haven't we haven't done that yet, but we definitely would look at artists like Giacometti, for example, who's who's always worked um, in sculpture, uh, artists like Calder, the do mobiles. So, it isn't it isn't something we've done, but but we certainly would. Now, you mentioned this earlier, but Massworks does spend a ton of resources on research. What research have you uncovered most recently that's really surprised you? Well, if I just think about the past couple of weeks, we, we tend to, uh, we're, we, we try to release one research piece, at least internally, if not externally on a weekly basis. So last week's was, was really about how art responds during inflation. And, you know, it's an, it's, it, it's an, it's a hard question because when we look at most of the data we have in the art market, um, at least statistically significant data, it goes back to the early, early to mid 1980s. So we, we don't have great data from the 70s into the 80s, which, which was, was kind of prime inflationary time in the U.S. So it's hard for us to conclude one way or another. I think our position today is that art is inflation neutral, meaning that historically it's always outperformed inflation, but we can't exactly call it inflation hedge. Although I think a lot of people would say that real assets generally are inflation hedges. Um, but, you know, we, we haven't technically been able to conclude that at this point in time. Now, that's obviously more external research you're doing, meaning outside of the platform you've built. I imagine you're doing a number, a lot of research on the platform as well. I mean, talk to us about how you kind of allocate between research going from how the platform is performing to just general market research in the art market. Yeah, I guess when we think about the platform, we tend to think about what are what are the business analytics around how, you know, how are people effectively investing? And we look at onboarding metrics, we look at uh, investing metrics. You know, one of the things that's that's really fascinating about the business, which we I didn't personally expect and we um, have come to just take as is belief at this point in time is when someone invests a certain amount of money, let's say $10,000, we know that that person almost certainly over their life will invest roughly $90 per month thereafter. And we've now for three years, we've at least in aggregate seen that seen that trend continue. So we, we continue to see really, really good repeat investor behavior. And I think a lot of that is just people starting with small allocations as part of an overall portfolio becoming more comfortable with the performance of the investment vehicles and then just growing those allocations over time. 
Going back to the inflation hedge kind of piece, if someone were to go into the art market now, say to diversify for inflation or something else, it would seem almost natural that they'd want to go into something kind of blue chip like a Rembrandt or something. Now, these pieces are only gaining maybe one or two percent, I think, on average uh, annually. So it's not a huge return, but it seems like a flight of safety, so to speak. So talk to us about the risks there and how common it is for someone to actually lose money on, say, like a blue chip piece of work. Yeah. So we, we you know, one of the things that, that I, I want us to do this year from a research perspective is figure out how to better communicate risk in the asset class. And there's a few things that I find particularly fascinating about, about the asset class personally. One is that, and you sort of alluded to this, but one is that if you look at the performance of, contem- of art by segment and you go back in time, what you see is that contemporary performs at 14% a year. Modern, impressionist modern performs between 6 and 10% a year. And then you roll all the way back in history, hundreds of years, and old masters appreciate at, call it 1% to 2% a year or, or roughly that of inflation. The thing that's so fascinating about that analysis is that you don't see a particular segment of the market in entirety that depreciates. So you see these these appreciation rates decline over centuries down to inflation-like rates, and then the asset class exhibits basic store of value characteristics. We don't know why that is, and, and we find that we find that really really fascinating from a uh, from a research perspective. So that's that's one of the things that we want to spend time on is to, to learn why does the asset class, at least in aggregate by segment, not depreciate? And then from an investor perspective, how do we better communicate the appreciation potential and the the, the downside risk potential? To, to get back to your, to your to your more specific question, you know, we we don't see paintings sell for losses that often. And when, when, we, when we look at the data, what we look at is when a painting is purchased at public auction, then that same painting is subsequently sold. What percentage of time is there a loss? And look, depending on the, the time period that you look at, five years, 10 years, I think we look at seven years as well, that percentage loss rate is always less than 10%. And then when you look at the magnitude of loss when there is a loss, it's generally also immaterial. And, and qualitatively, what you see in the art market is that if someone buys a Monet for $10 million, it's just very unlikely that they turn around and they sell it 10 years later for $7 million. We, we just don't see that happen that often. So perhaps that's just loss aversion on behalf of very wealthy individuals who, who are just unwilling to take losses. Perhaps that has to do with the fact that a lot of these artist markets, such as Monet, have declining supply. So as they have declining supply, prices are are increasing because demand is constant or growing. You know, we're not exactly sure, but it's it's a really it's a really interesting characteristic. Now, when you were mentioning that the contemporary art appreciates at say fourteen percent on average, when you go back to the ETFs, is that how you'll carve it up, so to speak? Just an ETF for the contemporary side of things, an ETF for you know the blue chips? How would that look? Yeah, I think, I think what we would want to do is we, we would want to find individual artist markets that we find interesting or investable. And we may even choose to equally weight those artists. You know, it's, it's funny, in, in a lot of asset classes, equally weighted strategies are generally viewed as, as less interesting, I think. In the art market, it's, it's, it's always historically been, been impossible to equally weight because it hasn't been securitized, right? So if you want to build a portfolio of art, you have to buy 
a $50 million Basquiat, a $30 million Rothko, you know, a $5 million Cecily Brown, a $1 million Gunter Ford, like whatever the um, the composition is of the, the size of paintings, but it's always been impossible to equally weigh. So now for the first time ever, with us securitizing, securitizing paintings, people can build equally weighted portfolios on the Masterworks website. But I do think an, an ETF product that followed some similar methodology could be could be interesting. That is super interesting. And to your point, if you back test things, and they do exist now, but say even the S&P 500 equally weighted instead of market cap weighted, it's compelling. Mainly because if you think about it, the market weight means that you know, say a company like Apple, that's $3 trillion. I mean, could it go up another $3 trillion? Possibly, but the <laughs> probabilities are that it's going to be a drag, you know, on the overall index, which is, you know, yet to be seen. But it's really interesting to think about it in a very similar fashion. How do you think about diversification more generally speaking in the art market, especially if you're just getting started in it? I mean, diversification matters. Diversification matters just like any any other asset class. I, I always tell investors to assume that you're going to be investing in, in 10 paintings over time. You know, I think our research suggests that eight paintings is kind of the minimum that, that you you would really want to invest in to gain to gain adequate exposure. So ten plus would be would be great. But you know, we we bring so many paintings to the platform now, again, one every every five and a half days on average. It's better to just wait over time and you know find the right opportunities. Now I just came up with a merchandise idea for you, which is a 10 hole punch card. So for example, Warren Buffett used to say (laughs) that you should invest like you have a 20 hole punch card and you can only buy 20 companies. So you're saying 10. I'm even more impressed. So maybe you should sell that on your site. We can keep track. Speaking of Buffett and and other billionaires, I know that Steve Cohen, for example, is a big art collector and has, I think, over a billion dollars worth of art, which is staggering. What would it take for a piece of art itself to become worth over a billion dollars and are we are we there yet are we getting close to it Oh yeah, I mean, I, I think we're I think we're really close to it. So we the most expensive painting ever was this Da Vinci painting which sold for four hundred and fifty million dollars and that was I think an unexpected result. I, I don't think really the the art world expected the painting to sell uh, for quite that much. But I guess from my perspective, and obviously I'm I'm biased, but I I don't think it would be that surprising for a painting to sell for a billion dollars. You know, clearly if the Mona Lisa were for sale, that would sell for significantly over a billion dollars. So those those paintings exist. I think the thing that's so surprising about the art market when people hear that a painting sold for four hundred fifty million dollars is not necessarily the price tag, right? Like there's lots of things that are four hundred fifty million dollars. Bridges cost four hundred fifty million dollars. Buildings cost four hundred fifty million dollars. The difference is that in the art market, you really have one person person buying that painting for $450 million, which is staggering, right? And every other asset class, there's consortiums of people that buy these these very expensive things together. So I think, you know, our view is that as these assets become securitized, it will be easier for, for some of these paintings that are very valuable to find buyers in the, in the billion dollar plus range if they're collectives of, of investors. Going back to the correlation a little bit more, I'm kind of curious because what you said just struck something for me, which is, you know, if it's uncorrelated to the S&P 500, but also correlated to, say, the wealth effect, as I understand it. Um, you know, when we were studying wine, I, I look at it in a similar way where the price of wine kind of tends to go up more correlated to the markets, it seems, because it generates this wealth effect and people can then leverage or sell or whatever and create liquidity to buy to diversify into something like art. 
So with the markets going, you know, maybe entering recession territory, we're not sure yet. Do you think that will have a drag on the art market, just generally speaking? Well, I think recessions in general, you know, are always problematic for every asset class. So you just have to say that, say that broadly. Um, But if you look at the correlation between the, between art prices and the S&P, as as you mentioned, historically, it's been negligible. And, uh, you know, what we saw even during COVID was, was that art prices not only increased, but increased at rapid rates. I mean, we saw in the depths of COVID in, in March of 2020, something like 20 artist markets set price records. Um, you know, that's that's 180 degrees opposite of, of what you would expect. And I, and I think the reality is, for better or for worse, the top 1% on a global basis just, just wasn't impacted by COVID, arguably benefited. I, I do think that our prices are, are correlated to this, the, the wealth effect, as, as you describe it. And as long as there's more billionaires being created, and as long as the people that are, are buying art are getting wealthier, we continue to expect prices to go up. You mentioned that the Mona Lisa would probably fetch a billion dollars or more easily. Why does someone like the Louvre not securitize it? Maybe through you, maybe they could leverage your platform and sell even a piece of it to fund other activities or other art purchases. Has anyone approached you about that? Well, you know, it's interesting. We we had during COVID um, the Contemporary Art Museum in uh, the Netherlands. I think I, I'm getting the name specifically wrong. Uh, was having financial the Museum of Contemporary Art in the Netherlands was having financial problems, and we um, we went in and we agreed to buy a Banksy from them, and then we turned around and we lent the Banksy to them, so you can go and see that see that Banksy today still still hanging on their walls. Now, at some point, that painting will sell and you know investors will get proceeds and the, the painting will have to leave the museum. But I do think it's an, it's an interesting strategy for museums who want to raise capital, retain the painting over the next several years, potentially maybe have a, you know, a right of first refusal if someone does make an offer to buy the painting for the museum to raise the capital and continue to hold it internally. But yeah, I mean, there, there's so much art that's trapped up in museums and frankly so much in storage that's never even displayed that it, it does seem like at some point museums should be more rational about deaccessioning i think i think there's just always been concerns about um the museum's role in society and selling works of art that should belong to the public yeah you know on the topic of galleries you have a gallery in, in soho is that just overflowing at this point with art and at what point is are you going to continue to open up more and more galleries to make it more like a, a museum aspect across the country what, what's the strategy there it's 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 a good question we get asked that this question all the time by investors so i i, I prefer not to answer it right now because i, I don't want to uh, i don't want to commit to anything you know we we do have a gallery we actually moved offices so we're no longer in soho but we do have a gallery at our our new office space in brookfield place kind of in downtown new york but yeah i mean we we bring art in selectively the majority of art is still in storage it's very hard to um to display the vo- the volume of art that that we're buying but you know, one initiative this year is to, to frankly get better at building relationships with museums or institutions and, and trying to, um, to let more paintings live in public spaces. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. 
And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, it's Clay Fink here, host of We Study Billionaires. Want to hear one of my favorite sounds? Here it is. That's the sound I hear when I'm learning a new language with Babbel. And if you want to learn a new language this year, I guarantee it'll be one of your favorite sounds too. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app that actually works. Their quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. I love Babbel because it makes it so easy for me to speak Spanish while ordering food, asking for directions, or just having basic conversations without needing the help of my phone. It's no wonder that Babbel has sold over 16 million subscriptions and studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash WSB. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash W-S-B. Rules and restrictions may apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. All right, so I'm really eager to talk to you about 
the metaverse because last time <laughs> you and I spoke, I mean, the Beeple had just sold for $69 million. It was really the first NFT to do something like that. And But NFTs, even at that time, weren't really being taken all that seriously. I'm not sure they should be even now, but I'm wondering if your mind has changed on NFTs in any way. Our, our thinking is, is definitely evolving with NFTs. I think our position is probably still the same, but I'll, I'll, I'll walk you through, I guess, how we, how we think about it today. So when we think about art or any other asset class, we think about it very fundamentally. And, and we ask ourselves two questions. One, can we demonstrate that it beats inflation? And two, can we demonstrate that it lacks correlation with other, other asset classes? And that's just, you know, that's kind of finance 101. Should something be included in a portfolio? And they have to meet those two criteria. And I think the challenge that people always forget with, with NFTs is that, sure, they've shot way up in value. They actually collapsed for, for those who remember after they shot up in value and then they subsequently shot up in value again. We don't see that as, as a predictable trend line. We see that as, as highly volatile. So could be interesting to speculate. I, I don't personally know how to speculate on that market. Like I, our, our team doesn't have, doesn't have that experience. When you think about the, the second point of correlation, I do think this one is changing. So I think historically, we would have said NFTs are correlated to Ethereum, which is correlated to Bitcoin, which is correlated to public equities. We haven't looked at this recently, but it does feel like that correlation dynamic is improving, that NFTs are less correlated to Ethereum now than they, they were many months ago. So, you know, I, I think our view is that it's still early as NFTs evolve, you know, as we see more predictable price increases, perhaps it's a strategy we could consider, probably a strategy we would consider as part of a fund rather than specific individual investments. Uh, just to reduce the, the the risk or the volatility. That's how we're thinking about it today. Now, for someone like you who's put in real work to legitimize your products and to legally securitize the pieces of art, I think it took you over a year, you know, just to securitize your first one. Does the opaqueness of the NFT industry bother you at all? Like, you know, the fact that it just seems very questionable, I guess, is a good a good word for it. So I, I think the truthful answer is yes, and that's a that's a personal opinion, you know, more so than a masterworks opinion. But I think the challenge that I have personally with crypto is that is it, it's an, it's entirely unregulated. And regardless of of your perspective on on regulation, and I'm you know I'm I'm uh, generally conservative when I think when I think about things like like regulation, but in securities there has to be some regulation, and and in, and in crypto there's there's really none. So you you know, you see major players influencing markets in ways that 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 just hurt retail investors. You know, I, I do think that's fair that you have to always be very cautious with a lot of the data that you see in crypto markets because it is highly manipulated by small, small numbers of people. Now, I noticed that one of the VCs that came in on your Series A is focused on the Web3 tech world. Are there plans for Masterworks to somehow play a role in that new innovation of sorts? Well, you know, I think, I think one of our blind spots continues to be this, this NFT space. So um, we, we did uh, kind of let Mike, Mike Novogratz and the Galaxy crowd come into the fundraise with, with the thought that they're much smarter than we are on, on crypto and, and NFTs. And we continue, continue to explore that with them. We've got a meeting uh, next week with them to continue to talk about it. So I think 
you know, our view is that we want people around the table that understand things that we frankly don't understand. And that was really, really why we, we brought them in. And going back to galleries, could you see a world where there are galleries with digital TVs on the wall displaying NFTs at some point in the near future in the physical world? Yeah, I mean, you, you could, you know, one of the, one of the features that we're uh, contemplating right now, which I personally think would be really cool is individual user profiles of Masterworks where um, it's www.masterworks.io forward slash Scott Lynn. And that effectively displays your art collection. And then you can click and go into a virtual gallery to see your art collection. You can share it with friends. You, you know, you can keep it for yourself. But it it is we we've done this with a handful of paintings. And while it seems you know like a bit of a I don't know kind of web point three feature on the surface, it is really interesting to see paintings at scale that you've invested in in context with one another. Um, frankly, some of the paintings that people are investing in are are giant, right? They're ten feet tall and. 12, 13 feet wide. And people don't realize that until they, they see it in more of a, a virtual environment or, or the real world. So I think there are features like that that could be, could be pretty cool and frankly, relatively simple to implement. Yeah. I imagine the quote unquote community aspect of Web3 could be really interesting for Masterworks because you can find communities of people who have similar interests. Say, for example, they might all own a Basquiat or the same Basquiat if they have a fractional share in it. And uh, that could really bring people together in some aspect. Have you considered that as part of this uh, development as well? We have. And we, we also think about those those kind of like, you know, we, we refer to them generally as lifestyle, lifestyle uh, opportunities. We've thought about this in the real world. I mean, we, we now have, I think, uh, 5,000 plus investors in New York City. Feels like, you know, we should have some venue, gallery, restaurant, members-only club that people can come and see, see these paintings, right? I mean, we've raised whatever, over $100 million from people in New York City alone, it, w- it would be great to do something in the real world where they can experience what they, what they own. I've been really eager to talk to you about this. And I don't know if you followed it at all, but there are these things now called DAOs, right? Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. There's this one that raised, I think, $45 million within maybe a day or two to then go and buy this copy of the Constitution. It's called Constitution DAO. And it got a lot of traction, a lot of press. And and very transparently, to their credit, on their website, it talked about how you weren't really buying a piece of the Constitution. You were buying what was called a, a voting right, essentially, on a, where to park the thing, basically. To, you would have some say as where to put it. And it, it just raised a lot of questions around like who actually owns the piece of art once it, you know, it, it almost in that sense felt a little bit like a Kickstarter campaign for somebody to go th- <laughs> then buy this thing. Talk to us about how Masterworks is different from that. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, that there's, there's a lot of, a lot of these, these DAOs or DAO-like concepts, I think, that are trying to provide some lifestyle component or some, you know, interaction with the object without actually having ownership. And, and we're fundamentally an investment platform, right? I mean, our, our view, again, is that this is the largest asset class that's never been securitized. Characteristically, it, it historically has outperformed public equities. It has negligible correlation. It deserves a role in a portfolio. I think when we, we think about our, our measurement of success, it's, it's 10, 20 years from now. Investors hold a couple percent of a portfolio in art. That's very different than than how the crypto world is functioning today, right? I'm I'm not sure why people are spending millions of dollars on tokens to grant them voting rights or access 
to see something, right? Like if I'm if I'm spending millions of dollars on something, I want it to be an investment and have have intrinsic value. Yeah, I agree. Now you did say your team they're not experts say on this NFT space yet, but have you seen any comparisons in that space that do make sense to you as far as um, the valuations of a certain piece of art or the you know scarcity, uh, so to speak? Or is there something there that you're starting to see that says, okay, yeah, I could see why that makes sense? You know, unfortunately, it's really the opposite. So when we when we think about cultural significance, and I think that's the the right way to to, to characterize your question. In the traditional art world, we think about uh, three different things, which are which are all quantifiable. One is which museums collect that given artist. Uh, one is what other important artists does that artist exhibit with, and then one is how global is the demand for a given artist. So obviously, with NFTs, NFTs are, are global by nature. So I'm, I'm not sure you know that one's really relevant. The other two, I struggle with a bit more. I mean, if you if you look at historically who the tastemakers are and who decides what is culturally significant. Museums play a very large role in that. And and museums really haven't accepted, I guess, for lack of a better word, NFTs generally. So we don't don't see curators or critics from that world stepping into... to, to welcoming, you know, NFTs or putting together exhibitions on NFTs. Yeah, that could change, but yet we, we, we haven't seen it. So I think those are the signals that we're looking for. When, when do institutions really start to buy NFTs? When do they start to build shows around them? Uh, from an artist perspective, what are the NFT artists that are doing things different, that are doing things interesting, unlike other artists? I mean, there's a lot of these NFTs that I look at that are totally underwhelming. Uh, you know, they look, they look like they could be done by a third grader. So I don't... Of course, people say that about our paintings, right? We subjective. $20 million boss gets to the platform and people say, oh, my kid could do that. So I don't, maybe, maybe I'm now that person. But um, yeah, that's, that's how we think about it, I guess. Well, given that there are now all these billionaires and gazillionaires in the crypto space you even have you know 15 year olds in the nft space that are making millions of dollars now you know if you thought about getting them into onto your platform have you considered accepting things like bitcoin or ethereum just to you know convert onto your platform for ownership of a of a piece of real work yeah, we, we do accept crypto via BitPay. So we we'll, we take crypto as a payment method. You know, it's interesting with, with a lot of NFT people, we, we just don't, uh, sorry, with a lot of crypto people, we just don't see them diversifying away from crypto. I mean, it, even these, it, it, I was talking to uh, one of the, the heads of, of um, uh, one of the you know largest private banks in the world. Um, and he was talking about a lot of new clients that they're getting that are all crypto billionaires and how they just can't get them to diversify away from crypto in any way, shape, or form. And you know, on a on a smaller scale, we see the same thing, uh, which I think is a little bit unfortunate because you know I, I don't know personally, I've lived through three financial crises, and I think until you live through one, you don't totally appreciate uh, the need for diversification, but. Most people that have created wealth in crypto really haven't haven't seen that dynamic yet. One maybe comparison that, that I thought I would share with you that maybe I want your opinion on is the fact that you mentioned Monet is, I think, the best-selling art. Uh, it was certainly the highest bid, that $450 million piece of work that sold. But I think in general, he's one of the top-selling uh, artists in the world. And the question is around awareness. So when you when you think about the value, you would 
it's easy to think about scarcity, but if you think about Monet, you know, his paintings are printed on posters that are sold in urban outfitters. I mean, they are they are everywhere. They're ubiquitous at this point. And so there's a lot of awareness about him. And even though that there are these really cheap, you know, uh, replicas or facsimiles of his art distributed around the world, it doesn't seem to distract from the value he has of his real works. In, in the same way, the fact that an NFT could be a JPEG and, and distributed, do you see a correlation there between awareness of an artist and value, even though the actual work could be distributed in a, in a lot of different ways? It's an, it's an interesting question. We've never been able to, to measure that, but I have to believe it, it has an impact. I mean, other artists that we see a similar dynamic with uh, are artists like Cause, who has a huge Instagram following, uh, really, really became popular through, through Instagram. And, and that's helped, that's helped him build, build his market. You know, Monet, interestingly, is, is the only, one of the very few impressionists who we consider in, investable, right? He outperforms, significantly outperforms most other impressionist artists. And, and perhaps that's why his brand continues to just live on uh, much larger than other, other artists like Van Gogh would be another, another example, but he, he, he painted far, far fewer paintings. But yeah, I mean, we, we haven't quantified it, but it, but it, but it, it seems like that would be the case. It's interesting you haven't quantified it. So even looking at like Google Trends or something, just, you know, really back of envelope stuff, would you be looking into the, the overall internet interest in something like a certain artist? Yeah, we, we, we you know, it's funny. We, we spent a lot of time with Google Trends data. We've never been able to really, to really correlate increase in Google Trends with eventual increase in prices. And an example is, is, is the, uh, the Banksy the Banksy sale or the, the painting shredded, right? So that was the all-time peak when people were searching for Banksy and couldn't figure out, you know, how, how this work of art shredded itself a couple of years ago. And that really was just kind of general retail interest, but had nothing to do with his, his market or prices. Now, does your platform inform participants about how many works are actually publicly available, you know, from a certain artist? Because I think that's such an interesting metric. Like even the Da Vinci's, I think there was two that aren't, you know, held by museums of that one piece of, you know, they're just so rare. I feel like that's such an important metric if you're considering buying into an artist. Is that displayed on the website? It's not displayed on the website. It's a metric that we uh, are going through, uh, through painstaking effort to collect across all these artist markets internally. It's very hard to collect because, you know, you, you have to, you have to understand how many paintings the artist painted to begin with. And then throughout time, you have to track uh, declining supply by paintings going into institutions. So individual artist markets can take, you know, weeks on their own just to, to collect data for, for one market. But it is, it is, it is something we look at internally, but we, we don't, we don't share it once we, once we collect it. All right. Last question about the metaverse. So Masterworks comes in and democratizes access to these unbelievable works of art, which is so cool. But the Web3 aspect is all about decentralization, right? So is there a world where Masterworks itself is disrupted because artists are now interacting right with the participants or investors directly just on a blockchain somewhere? I think that's really NFTs, right? I mean, it's when artists create NFTs, they, they can sell them directly to someone uh, via the blockchain. Now, you know, I, I, I can I can safely say that from being in the art market for a long time and knowing lots of artists, like many artists struggle with the, all of the commercial aspects of, of the art market, right? They're very good at painting paintings, but they don't know how to price them. They don't know how to 
find collectors to to buy them. So they work with galleries, and and galleries really have taken on that role for for over a hundred years. So I, you know, I I don't know if that's a problem that blockchain solves. It clearly solves the ability to to just complete the transaction. But I think you know, in terms of kind of representing the artist, communicating the story, finding the right collectors, building out museum interest, building out collector interest. Um, there's probably still an intermediary that's that's required for an artist. All right, Scott, I love having you on the show. I always learn a ton and this did not disappoint. So thank you so much <laughs> for coming on again and especially entertaining uh, my, my thoughts on the Web3 space. All right. For those looking to get interested in this, maybe for the first time, what are the best resources that you would recommend either through your platform or otherwise before they get started? Yeah, so they can, you can go to Masterworks, www.masterworks.io, create an account, schedule a call with our membership team. Uh, our membership team walks you through suitability, talks about how you're investing today, what your risk tolerance is, you know, makes recommendations around specific artists, how to think about art as part of your overall portfolio. It's really the best place to get started. They can point you to, to third-party resources as well. City does some great research on the art market. Our research team partners with a lot of other private banks. Some of that is, is linked to on our website. But yeah, I would I would just start start slow, start small, diversify over time is is really the right, right way to, to get involved. Scott, really appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on the show. Let's do it again. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, that's all we had for you this time. If you're loving the show, please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app and be sure to leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. We're also trying to continuously improve this show. So give us feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And if you're trying to navigate the current markets, I highly encourage you to check out the TIP finance tool. Simply Google TIP and it'll pop right up. And with that, we will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.